Thanks, Bonchita. Um, you would have received an outline as you came in. Uh, that has the talk headings on it, if that helps you follow along the talk. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and hopefully some of the things we talk about today uh, can be of some help to you. I was reading a book uh, on the topic of work recently, and the author said something that I found really, really scary. Uh, he said, I have reached the age where I realise that I'm not going to be able to do all the things that I had the potential to do. And the reason that I found that scary is because that tells me that there will be a certain point in my life when I too will have to come to terms with the fact that not everything that I'd hoped to do or felt that I had the potential to do will actually happen. Now, the man who wrote this, uh, from what I can work out, he was probably in his 50s when he wrote the book, uh, and really what he's talking about is what most people call a midlife crisis, that sudden realisation uh, that those things in your life that you thought uh, would be worthwhile, the things that you'd hoped to set out to achieve that would confirm to you that you had made it, that you had used your life well, they were never going to happen. Now, ordinarily, I don't think that sort of thing usually bothers university students like you, right? Nobody's thinking about that and what's it going to be like when they're 50 uh, because, you know, if they are, they're planning ahead and they're cocky enough to think that they'll be the exception to the rule. So, so really, who really cares what a boomer is saying to us in some book somewhere? Except there's a new kid on the block and it's called the quarter-life crisis. Uh, here's what Juliana Piscors says. Um, and if you've got questions, you can see here, you can head up to the slide or into that room code. It'll pop up at various points. This is what she says. Last week, I found my 15-year-old self's diary. In its angst-riddled pages, I discovered a list of things I wanted to achieve by the age of 25. These included own a house in Notting Hill, be a successful TV presenter, be engaged, own a pink Audi TT. Crap! I've kind of toned down the language here for you guys, I thought. I'm 25 and a half, single, unable to pay my rent, and the closest thing I own to a car is a broken skateboard. My head began to spin, a familiar tightness seized my chest, and the sweat glands in my palms went into overdrive, signalling the beginning of a panic attack that would last the best part of the day. The smallest things now set me off. An Instagram post announcing a friend's engagement Finding out a celebrity I fancy is several years younger than me. Been there. <laughs> Monday mornings. Anyone living their best life on a beach. The idea that people are achieving while I flounder fills me with panic. She finishes by saying, I'm in the throes of a quarter-life crisis. The quarter-life crisis, or my experience of it, manifests itself in me wanting to run away, to start again, or bury myself in anything that will distract me from my own reality. Clinical psychologist Alex Folk defines it as a period of insecurity, doubt and disappointment surrounding your career, relationships and financial situation in your 20s. Check, check, check. The quarter-life crisis is a relatively recent phenomenon. It's been around for about 20 years and it's triggered by the realisation that our expectations of what we should have achieved by our 20s aren't going to happen generates anxiety, depression, deep feelings of dissatisfaction and failure. Now, as you do the research, I found one man said that during his quarter-life crisis, it led to a mental health breakdown, followed by suicidal thoughts, and then an episode of psychosis before he received therapy. But here's the good news. Most people in this room will experience a quarter-life crisis in the next five years. Congratulations. Here's my question. Why does it get that bad? 
Because all of us have aspirations, right? Things that we hope to do in our life. They might be wildly ambitious, like become a famous singer, or something more achievable, like becoming an accountant um, or raising a family. But why are we having existential crises and spiring into inconsolable despair at the age of 25? Well, the answer to that question is because our world defines us by what we do. And we can see this in a bunch of places. I think the most obvious place you can see this is in your work. Now, we no longer have jobs. I don't know whether you've noticed that. In fact, we don't even have careers anymore. We have callings. That one perfect occupation that kind of fits you like a glove and brings ideological fulfilment and deep satisfaction. We see it in other places as well. We see it in ethics. So if you've been studying uh, this on campus, you, you'll see that the debates about abortion and euthanasia, they centre around definitions of personhood and what defines a person is their function, what they can do. It's actually one of the key reasons most healthcare professionals advocate abortions for fetuses that are diagnosed with Down syndrome. Because a person's self, their identity, comes from their ability. You also see it in the more mundane places. Next time you go to a party, have a listen for the first thing that everybody will ask you. What is it? What do you do? Uh, if somebody asks you how you are, the odds are you'll answer in terms of productivity. I'm having a great day. I've gotten so much done. Oh, it's been a pretty trashy day. I tried to get this thing happening, but it kind of all stuffed up and now I've got nothing to show for it. You see, our society has raised us to build our understanding of who we are on what we do. And if you don't believe me, here's a picture of a wall at a high school in Perth. And it's right there in big, bold letters for every student to walk past every day for at least six years, telling them that they are what they do. Now, some of you will recognise that school. I'm not having a go at that school. I think they're just the ones who are saying what the world is telling us in every other avenue. You are what you do. And whether or not you agree with the principle, it's the way that we have all been trained to think. So the thing that I want to convince you of today is that building your sense of self and identity on what you do is entirely the wrong way to go about life. It's not only miserable, but it's a way of thinking that disregards the God who made you. And so what I'm hoping to do today is to show you how God thinks about what you do and then challenge you to consider whether or not you need to rethink your life. So, no biggie, nothing real big today, uh, but I want you to know where we're heading. Uh, so I'm going to begin, uh, you'll see this on the outline, I want to start by giving you three reasons why, why I am what I do will fail you. And here's the first reason. Your achievements are an unstable foundation. Uh, the central tenet of today's thinking about identity is what sociologists call expressive individualism. I'm not sure whether you've heard that term before, uh, but basically what expressive individualism says, it says two things. It says, I and I alone am able and have the right to define who I am. I determine my identity. And then second, my most fundamental right in this world is the ability to express that identity to the world. Now, we'll be talking a lot more about this next week on Tuesday when we look at how the different voices in the world shape our identity. But one of the results of that particular type of thinking is an immense pressure to not just determine who you are in amongst all the hormones and the teenage angst, but you have to then express it. 
And if you can't do that and you can't display it and justify yourself to all the people of the world looking on, then you failed. And that's true of whatever you place your identity in. But if that's wedded with the mantra, I am what I do, then it's not enough to just achieve things that you want to achieve and then kind of sit back and say to the world, look at what I have done and rest and be at peace. You have to keep it up because your identity is dependent on performance. It needs to be expressed. Otherwise, you're not being true to yourself. And let me tell you, that is exhausting. If you don't believe me, have a listen to what Madonna has to say. Here's Madonna. This is what she says. I have an iron will, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Now, she said this in 1991, but how much is that what we feel today, right? And social media and all that sort of stuff. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now you might not like her music, but you can't deny that she has worked her way to the top of her profession and her life has been defined by what she does. And so if anybody is successful by the world standard of you are what you do, then it's her. And my question is, is she stable? No. Look at the last line of that quote again. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now, like I said, she said that in the 90s. This is before social media where everyone is kind of humble bragging about their achievements and how their life is on this constant upward trajectory. But we've all seen the studies and they emerge more and more every day. Everybody on social media is looking on and dying on the inside because they either can't keep up or if they're leading the pack like Madonna, they can't rest because they've got to stay on top. Otherwise, they slide down. Now, a Christian author I was reading during the week described this like spinning plates. You've seen that at the circus, right? The guy comes along with the stick and spins a plate and goes on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And the, the amount of plates he can spin is really contingent on how long the plate continues to spin because then he's got to go back and, and he's got to come back to the first one and spin it again and spin it again. And, and, and the performance lasts until he stops. It is so stressful. How do you keep everything going? And the answer is you just keep spinning until you go, okay, the act is over, I'm walking off the stage. You take the plates off the sticks, you stack them on the table, and you walk away. And let me say that's easy to do if you haven't loaded your sense of self into your plate spinning. If you haven't done that, then you can walk away. But if it's the foundation of your self-understanding, then at the point that you stop, the plates crash and crack, and it will destroy you. Have a listen to this. This is another famous person, somebody that you probably don't know because she's a bit older. This is Chris Avert. She was a very famous tennis player in the 70s and 80s. And this is her comment after she's retired. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. And then look at that last line there. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. And that's the first reason I am what I do will fail you. It is an unstable foundation. 
But let's suppose for a minute that you still think that you can pull it off. After all, you're at UWA, you've probably been the cream of the crop for a while now. You're clearly the exception to the rule. And, you know, Madonna, she hadn't had some stuff worked out, but I think I've worked out how I'm going to pull this off and have a satisfying life. Well, here's the second reason I am what I do will fail you. Your achievements will not last. Now, up until now, I've been using the world's own words to show you the inconsistency of how this forms your identity. But now I want us to turn to the Bible and hear what God has to say, and what he has to say in particular in a book called Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, it was written by a very wise man. And, and the thing that makes this book really interesting is that he devoted virtually his entire life to working out what life was about. So he's basically one continued lived experiment and what he did as one of his experiments was to base his life entirely on what he did. So let's have a look. This is up on the screen for you, but you can turn to it in Bibles if you'd like. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, here's what he got up to. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. He clearly wasn't in Perth because he wouldn't be able to pull that one off with all the sand. Um, he made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And this is his conclusion once he gets there. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, why does he say it was meaningless? Well, if we keep reading, we see his answer in verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who had not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving, key phrase there, with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain, even at night their minds do not rest. It's Madonna all over again, isn't it? This too is meaningless. It's Madonna, except he adds one more thing that she doesn't, and then you die. And so you labour and you labour and you toil and you stress yourselves over whatever it is, over your exams and your marks, over your job applications, over the 20 hours a week that you're putting in to get to the next level of your sport, where you get sucked into a job that rides you hard for 80 hours or more a week, where you try to build a family that's like perfect, always seeking to have everything in the right place and you never get any rest. And then supposing, just supposing you make it and you pull it off, you don't get to keep it. You never actually enjoy all of the anxious striving that you have put in. And so the writer, he continues in chapter 3, What do workers then gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now what's he saying there? He's saying that God, in his kindness, would you believe, has given us all a sense of what's gone before and what's gone on ahead, a sense of eternity. Now, we all want to make our mark on the world, but the thing of that sense of eternity that kind of rolls in front of us and behind us is that we are powerless to make that mark. Because how many of us can name our great-grandparents, let alone the works that they can do? One person, right? 
But look at this, the majority of people do not know their grandparents or what they did. And so the, press, the depressing reality, and it is a reality, is that whatever you do, it will not last. And the odds are, the high odds are, it will not be remembered. In fact, the only thing that you collectively as a generation are going to leave behind is a bunch of TikToks. Have you ever thought about that? Right? And 50 years' time, historians are going to look back on the internet because you've recorded everything you've ever done in your life, and they're going to be like, whoa, that generation was weird. <laughs> That's your legacy. That is the best you can do in terms of leaving something for other people to know and be remembered. Now, you may be asking, why is the world that way? And the writer, he continues to think and cogitate, and he arrives at a conclusion in verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever, contra to man. Nothing can be added to it or nothing can be taken from it. And God does it so that people will fear him. So get that. He tells us that the whole monotonous, frustrating system of doing things but never really getting there is designed to show us that there is a God who is far beyond our reckoning, whose works actually last, and that our menial lives are meant to point us to him so that we will fear him. And this is where the Bible introduces a paradox into our lives. Because just as your works are entirely vain, completely pointless, who cares what you do? What this says is that what you do in life actually matters. But it's not your achievements, it's your moral actions. So have a look at the conclusion of the writer's entire life experiment, not just the you are what you do. He did everything. He did pleasure, um, he did wisdom, he did all sorts of things. He says this, Now all has been heard and here is the conclusion of the matter. This is what life is about. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Your achievements will not last. And that brings us to the third reason why I am what I do will fail you. And that's that your achievements cannot outweigh your failures. This is really important to understand because I think this is where a lot of people become unstuck. They come along with me up to this point in the talk and like, okay, cool, I'm on board with that. Madonna, she's right. Yeah, this guy in Ecclesiastes, he's kind of got this, this good idea as well. Achievement for the sake of fulfillment isn't going to get me there. So what I need to do is the things that God wants me to do. And if I do those things, then I'm sweet. And so instead of pouring all of our energy into becoming an influencer or writing your first book by 25 or whatever it is that you think you need to achieve to be you, we pour all our energy into being a good person. But I want you to notice at that point, that's just a change in direction. It's still operating out of the same principle that says I am what I do. And God is emphatic on this point. The principle is flawed. Because no matter what you do, your achievements whether they're worldly successes, whether they're moral actions, they cannot outweigh your failures. The verdict of the Bible is clear on this, and this is from the passage that Ponchita read out for us before. Have a look at verse 3. All of us lived among them, this is Gentile sinners, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God will bring every deed into judgment. And then the writer of Ephesians tells us that every single one of us has done deeds that deserve that judgment. 
not least of which is the attempt to build our lives around our doing without reference to him. We're busy off kind of doing our own thing, ignoring God's rule over our lives and determining what we think is going to make it in the world rather than listening to him. And the Bible says that that is sin. And in fact, this is the closest the Bible ever comes to affirming that you are what you do. Because what Ephesians is telling us is that what you do is sin. And that makes you a sinner. Now, it's important that we understand this because I think usually we think about our actions as though they're on a scale. Yeah, you know, okay, I've done some bad things. Yeah, I get that. Some things in my history that I don't want to talk about. But, but if I do enough good things, I can tip the balance. And then on, on balance, God will accept me. But God doesn't operate like that. He operates more like a driving test. Don't know whether you guys have ever been through that trauma. I have. Now, you break one road rule and you're done. You could have been the most conscientious driver for 99% of your tests, but if you run one stop sign, then you are finished. It ends there. And what God tells us is that we've all run the stop sign. Have a look at verse 1. This is the state that He tells us we're in. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, I know that's a pretty hard thing to hear. I remember when I was a uni student, I tried to explain this to a friend of mine uh, and basically told her that because her life had not been lived in reference to God, that she was spiritually dead and under his judgment, and she stormed out of the room, and we never spoke again. But unless we understand this fundamental proposition of the Christian faith, that what you have done has brought you into a state of death and judgment before God, then you can't understand the great hope and the wonder of God's salvation. Because here's the Christian gospel, the message that saves you. And it's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Have a look at verse 4. We'll continue working through this passage that we read earlier. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Look at what God does for us in our state of death. He makes us alive with Christ. And the Bible calls this an act of grace. Grace is just another word for generosity. Think undeserved. Because remember, God is not impressed by what you do. And you can't do things to earn his favor. Remember, it's not a scale. But because he loves you, irrespective of what you can and can't do or will or won't do or have or have not done, because he loves you, in his mercy he intervened and he sent Jesus and so it's what Jesus does, not what we do, that sits at the heart of Christianity. And what is it that he do, does? He does three things. First of all, he lives a perfect life. He is the one person who fully obeyed God. He never ran the stop sign. And as such, he's the only one in human history whose every action was pleasing to God, which means he is the only one who has never had to fear the judgment of God. We're all sunk, right? But Jesus, not Jesus. But this is the thing that's fascinating because second, here's the second thing he does. He willingly then chooses to go and die on a cross to face the judgment that he doesn't deserve but that we do. 
And he does that on our behalf. But it's even more profound than that, uh, because the person who wrote Ephesians, he also wrote a book called 2 Corinthians. uh, And this is what he says in in chapter 5. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Do you see what's happened there? At the cross, there's an exchange, an exchange of what we do. Jesus takes our corrupt works, those works that mean we are deserving of judgment, and he takes the punishment because of them. But then at the same time, anybody who believes in Jesus, he receives Jesus' perfect works. And so therefore, when God looks upon him, it's as though he's looking upon Jesus, and we are viewed then as righteous. So that's the second thing God, uh, Jesus does. Lives the perfect life, dies a death on our behalf. And then third, the third thing we actually saw in that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus rose to life again. And in doing so, he made it possible for us who were spiritually dead in our sins to be spiritually resurrected to new life. A life that now no longer ends in judgment, but, verse 7 there, the incomparable riches of his grace the Bible calls eternal life, a life free from striving and anxious toil. And I want you to notice here, as you skim your eyes over what it is that God does for us in those verses, that all of it happens to us. None of it is done by us. And that's why the Christian gospel is about what Jesus has done, not what we do. That leads us to our final section for today, And that's to answer the question, uh, you're heading there on the page. So what must I do to be saved? Uh, This is the question that I think several people in the Bible ask. You see it at various points. And the answer is always the same. And we see it at the end of the passage in Ephesians there in verse 8. How are we saved? We put our faith in Jesus. Now, don't let that word scare you. I think modern-day society has made you think faith is this weird, subjective, magical kind of weird thing that kind of comes out of you and you have it or you don't or whatever it is. But but, but for faith, is just an ordinary, everyday word. It just means trust. Now, when you got on the bus to go to uni this morning, you exercised faith because you trusted the bus driver to get you here safely in the rain, right? Not, and instead, to, to drive you safely, rather than do like sick burnouts on Mounts Bay Road and like just kind of <laughs> flip the bus off into the river, right? You put faith in him. The only difference between bus driver faith and Christian faith is the person that you put that trust in. It's not the bus driver, it's Jesus. And the call of the gospel, the thing that God requires of us is that we trust in the work, the things that his son Jesus has done, such that on the day of judgment, when we stand before God and he looks at our works to be judged, we can point to Jesus and say, there is absolutely no reason that you should accept me. I have never done anything that could earn your favour or blessing. In fact, the only thing that I have ever done is to deserve your judgment. But look at what he's done. And those works are now mine because of what I have done. I have put my faith, my trust in Jesus. And that is the tremendous grace of the gospel. We deserve death, but if we place our trust in Jesus, we are granted life. A life free of anxious striving, trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and to the world. Because now in Jesus, because of what he has done, we are accepted. Now, you might ask at this point, well, hang on a minute, Matt, isn't faith something that we do? I think that's a great question. But the thing that I think Ephesians makes very clear in verse 8 and verse 9 there up on the screen is that 
Faith is in direct contrast to works. So let me ask you, uh, for those of you who caught the bus to uni today, did you get yourself to uni? You guys are shaking your heads, but the answer is no. The bus driver did. Yeah, well, I got on the bus, didn't I? Well, let me ask you a second question. Two people, hypothetical, get on the bus and they put their faith in the bus driver. One, one person, supremely confident in the bus driver's ability. He's a family friend. He knows the driver has skills. He's set. I know that I'm getting to uni. The other person has almost died in a bus crash earlier that year. And they are absolutely terrified that they're going to die in a burning wreck. Which one got to uni? Both of them, right? Because both of them stepped on the bus and put their trust in the bus driver. Now, the first one, he did more faithing, right? But it didn't make him any more at uni than the person who was wetting themselves along the way, right? He can't boast in his supreme confidence that, you know, oh, yeah, I had such faith. That's what got us there. Because it did absolutely nothing to contribute to his arrival at university. It wasn't a work. It was an exercise of trust in the one who did the work. And so what matters is not the faith, but where you put it. And that tells us something I think really important. You could be the high-achieving, moral goody-two-shoes, or you could be the completely dysfunctional, washed-up loser drunk. But neither one of those people has the inside edge on salvation. Because both of those people need to do the exact same thing, which is throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus to avoid judgment and receive life. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't matter what you do in God's eyes. It does. Because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're actually acknowledging to him that your life has been on the wrong path. You've kind of been wandering off on your own rather than listening to him instead of living for what Jesus wants And so how you behave now is actually an indication of whether or not you're trusting. So those two people who got on the bus, if one of them jumped off halfway through, we know that they don't have much trust, right? And so our works and the things that we do do matter. We see that in the end of the passage there in verse 10. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But notice that those works come after salvation. Becoming a Christian transforms what you do, but they will never determine your standing before God. They flow out of salvation. They never contribute to it. So we really need to get our heads around this idea. Christianity is not about being a good person. It's just not. It never has and it never will be. It's about trusting Jesus and letting him change you from the inside out. Because the Christian message, it's not you must do. It's it is done and so my challenge to you as we finish is this it's a simple question what have you built your life on is it what you do because what we've seen is where that ends up a life of toil and striving that ultimately ends up in the realization that you headed off in the completely wrong direction in fact, if I can just indulge another story here. Um, you go to any um, pa- uh, what is it, palliative care unit or cancer ward and you ask the nurses what it is that people care about when they die. Not a single person will say their achievements. What they say is their relationships. And they harbour deep regret that they have stuffed up their life because they have put emphasis and identity in the wrong place. 
And what the Bible tells us is the thing that will matter when you get to the end of your life is not what you do, but your relationships, and in particular, your relationship with the Lord Jesus. So maybe, just maybe, it's time to think about whether or not your life should be built not on what you do, but on what Jesus has done. Now I think there is going to be some questions now. And so, I'll get the Slido thing back up for you. We're going to have to zoom backwards through the Bible, so please don't get any kind of mind warped there. Um, and we'll get it up on one of the big screens. There you go. So if you've got questions, head to Slido. There's a room code. Um, and, um, alrighty. Um, let's, let's have some time. Um, just, 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 some, just some ground rules. Um, there is no such thing as a dumb question. I mean, actually, that's silly. We all know there's such a thing as a dumb question, right? But this is a, a place where dumb questions can be asked. Uh, there is no wrong question to ask. Uh, it can be as uh, off, off track or, or personal as you want it to be. Um, and we've got a bunch on Slido, but I did want to open up to the room and see if somebody wanted to be brave enough and ask something in person, because you get first dibs. Uh, that, that, that breaks the Slido system if somebody's actually brave enough to say anything. Otherwise, we'll go to the first question. Yeah, go for it, Jesse. Um, how would you define faith? Um, I would define it by its synonyms, which is to trust, rely, depend. Okay, um, And that's actually probably something really helpful to kind of file away and just sit in the back of your head. Um, a lot of people think faith is this mystical thing. I remember uh, at my sister's wedding, my cousin, who isn't a Christian, said to me, man, Matt, I wish I just had your faith. And I was just like, well, that's a bit strange. You're treating as though there's this kind of substance that I have or some sort of natural tendency in my personality that meant I could believe things that you can't. But really faith is trust, it's dependence. Um, uh, what's an example of this, right? The reason you trust the bus driver is because you reasonably expect that he's been trained and he's driven a bus before, right? Um, if you ask me to drive you to uni in a bus, don't trust me, okay? You don't have reason to. Uh, trust faith, it's a relational term. And so when it comes to the Christian gospel, it's really important to remember that we put our faith in Jesus. And the reason we do that is not because we're just like, ah, oh, science, so we'll just you know, jump over the gap and just kind of have this blind faith thing. The reason that we do that is because we have reasons to trust that what Jesus says he is and what he has done is true and can be depended on. In the same way that you trust your parents when they say certain things because you've got a lifetime of seeing it. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how I define faith. And, you know, it's just a sneaky answer to a question you didn't ask, which is how can we trust God? Well, simply by learning about him in the Bible and, and finding the reasons to do so. Yeah. Cool. Nothing from the audience, so you want to throw one over to me, Josh? Sure. All right. Um, our first question is, does this mean that we shouldn't strive for achievement? It's <laughs> a good question. I'm glad it was asked because I think this is the most logical kind of thing, right? So the question is, uh, does this mean that I can't strive for achievements? Uh, does that mean I need to put my desires to become a doctor and build a hospital or go overseas and do mercy missions and those sorts of things? Um, is that sinful or against God's will? The answer is no, right? If you, if you have the ability and you want to go off and do something, then go for it. Fantastic. The key point and the thing to understand behind all of this is what is driving those decisions, because if the thing that's driving those decisions is your desire to achieve, show yourself off, prove to yourself even, not just other people, that you're somehow okay or that that's the thing that you value and appreciate, then there's a problem there. Um, 
so long as you are under the, the, the rulership of Jesus and following what he has for you in your life, you are free to pursue those things. But the thing to get is that once you place yourself under Jesus and you start operating on, on his say-so and how he understands the world rather than I am what I do, that will cause you to make unpredictable decisions in the eyes of the world. So I know of count, not countless, I know of many people who are on track to become doctors and lawyers who are in high-paying jobs, and all of them at a certain point in their life decided, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go into Christian ministry and do what I do, which is, you know, that's not very impressive, just throwing that one out there, right? They gave up things that in the eyes of the world were successful, lofty achievements and ambitions, things and potentially could become partners in firms and those sorts of things, because there was a higher principle that governed the things that they did. In other words, anything that they chose to do which looked like worldly achievement or success was done because they were seeking to serve Jesus in it. Now, that can be really dangerous, right? Because you can trick yourself into thinking, oh, hang on, I'm, I'm doing this for God, right? As long as I'm trying to honour him, then as long as I'm, you know, my HD's uh, other thing that you know, brings him pleasure and joy. And that's not the case. Because God doesn't measure you by your achievements. He measures you based on how you respond to Jesus and how he tells you to live your life. Are you loving people? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you seeking to be godly? He doesn't judge you on those things. He's done that in Jesus. You can, you can be safe. You know, I haven't fulfilled my Christian duties. That's fine. Um, but do you understand what I'm getting here? That the, the principle changes, which means it constrains sometimes and sometimes make you to kind of do a left-field decision and not pursue uh, achievements, as it were. And actually, just as an aside thing, while you guys are whispering away and trying to work out what's going on the Slido... I think Christianity is particularly difficult, actually, mm -hmm. in this particular area, it's difficult for everyone, right, is particularly difficult for those of you who are talented and brilliant, which is actually probably most of you in this room, right? You're at UWA, I mean, I know some of you snuck in, you're like, oh, I'm a pretender here, don't look at me. Um, but most of us are really good at what we do. And did you notice something that was on that slide? I can't bring it up, but in Ephesians 2, verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. Coming to Jesus means that you have to humble yourself and acknowledge that you aren't all that and that you actually don't have control and autonomy over your life and the things that you might be able to do might actually not be as impressive as you thought they were. And so humility and that, that concept of letting go of everything and receiving God's gracious gift of salvation can actually be quite costly to you as a person particularly if you've lived your life ticking boxes and being impressive and getting scholarships and that sort of stuff. But yeah, long answer. Hopefully that was somewhat clear, but yeah, we'll go with it. Cool. Um, so the next question that we're doing, uh, is purely just believing and having faith in God without doing anything else sufficient in having forgiveness for sins? Cool. So I'll try and repeat it. Is simply having faith in God and not doing anything else sufficient for forgiveness, salvation... Uh, with God? The answer is yes. The question has to be, how do I know that faith is genuine? And the reason and the way that I know that faith is genuine is because my life is now displaying what it looks like to live under Jesus' rule. doesn't mean we get it right 100% of the time. That's why Jesus died. He died so that we could continue with him. Uh, and so at that point, it's a matter of proof. But yeah, understand, nothing you do gets you there. It is all grace Faith is enough. It's the only thing that you need. Yeah. We done? Cool. I'm sure there's plenty of other questions. Um, definitely on the Slido. Grab me afterwards. We'll chat. It's all good.